If you would like more information about Jubilee Church, please visit our website at jubileestl.org. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my heart had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the wicked when I saw the prosper excuse me, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of your works. This is the word of the Lord. Hey, could you guys help me celebrate something before we get started? You guys up for that? Yeah. All right. So today is the fourth anniversary of the launching of our Kirkwood location. So can we just give a big round of applause as though they were in the room? And today we're going to talk about envy. I'll say it again so the groans can be louder. Uh, We are uh, in this series, Killing What's Killing You, and we're taking a look at the things that that really are like, they can be silent killers. And the reason they can be silent killers, and you may have picked up on this as we've gone through this series, if you've been a part, uh, is that the, the main issue is never out there. Like it's always inside here. Like it's never external. It's always uh, internal, which is one of the reasons that make these things so difficult and damaging because they're very hard to detect and we don't look in the right places. So like when I lose my keys, one of the reasons why I cannot find them is I haven't looked in the right place yet. Every time, this is amazing. Every time I find my keys, they're where my keys are. (laughs) A lot of us struggle for years because we don't look in the right place. Sometimes we don't want to. In fact, so like, I'm really embarrassed to admit this, but like, I, I, when, when I lose my keys, you know, I'll just, I'll be stomping around the house looking for, where are my keys? And blah, blah, you know. And my wife will say something like this. Have you looked in your pockets yet? Now in that moment, in that moment, it's a long moment, but in that moment, I do not want to look at my pockets. Because I do not want my keys to be in my pockets because all that stomping just makes me look ridiculous. And it needs to be, it needs to be like the, 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 you know, some person who steals keys, like that person. But I don't want to look inside. And that's the same true about the things that we're looking at, things like worry and uh, lust and greed. And today, man, this is a real hidden one, envy. What is envy? Well, let's take a look. Envy is similar to... the. I want to make some distinction here. Greed says, I want more for me. Jealousy says, I want what you have. Envy is jealousy plus, and I don't want you to have it. 
Through comparison, envy can start with discontent for, of, of what you have, or even, uh, even this like justice thing, or it's not fair, and it can quickly turn into resentment toward others who have the thing that you want, and not only do you wish that you had it, but you hate them because they have it. Whereas the Bible tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Envy rejoices with those who weep and weeps with those who rejoice. The Germans have a great word for this uh, that means your pain brings me joy. Your pain brings me joy. Um, I remember I played basketball my freshman year of high school. I still play basketball. It's actually, I hurt my ankle yesterday. But uh, I still play basketball. But in freshman year in, in uh, high school, played basketball on the team. And there was one other freshman that I always competed with. I competed with him in, in running, in like schoolwork, and like, you know, who could get the most attention in class, who could cut up the most, you know, who could get the most laugh. Like we just competed on everything, everything. And we both played the same position in basketball. And when the season started, even though he, we, he, he got the start, Okay, so he got the start. And, um, and, and even though we were on the same team, um, if he did really well, I would get really mad. And if he did something poorly, it was great. And I remember one time he did something that like screwed up the game. And I'd never been so happy in my whole life. <laughs> That's what envy is. And affects all of us, affects men and women. Some, some people say, well, you know, lust is something that just guys struggle with, and envy is, you know, that's kind of like what women struggle with. And I thought about that. I'm like, well, I don't know, maybe that's true, except when it comes to our cars, except when it comes to our houses, except when it comes to the way that our wives look, except when it comes to the way our kids perform athletically, except when it comes to our fancy football teams. Other than that, you know, we don't struggle with it, except just those things. Uh, by the way, if you don't know what fantasy football is, it, it's just basically the male version of playing with dolls. I mean, that's what it is. And so it's just like, oh, look at my little running back. It's so cute. Um, but what happens with, with envy, it, it, we, we adopt what's known as like the, the crab mentality. I don't know if you've heard of the crab mentality, but uh, fishermen will tell you that if, uh, if, you put, if a crab's all by himself in a bucket easily climbs out of the bucket into the ocean. If you put all the crabs in it, I mean, fill them up to the brim, they'll, they'll never get out of the bucket. And here's why. Because every time a crab tries to get out, the other crab will gang up on them and pull them back down. And if that crab is persistent, that other cra the crabs will gang up on them and break the, the, the crab's legs. And if he keeps on persisting, the crabs will gang up on him and kill him. Will, will murder this other crab for trying to advance. And, and we do the same thing. We see someone doing well, and we murder them with our thoughts and our words. That's what envy does. So how does envy start? Well, it starts with comparing yourself to someone else. The writer of this psalm says, for I was envious when I saw them prosper. That's what it does. It's like, you're doing fine. Then you see someone else doing well. I envied them when I saw them prosper. They have no pain. They have awesome bodies. They're not in trouble. They're not like the rest of us. So envy begins with comparison. That could be material comparison. You know, I, I used to love my car until I saw his truck. Then I like, ah, oh, then I just, I don't like my car and I hate him. 
Or, you know, she, you know, maybe you see this post on, you know, someone post a, a picture of their brownies, except you're not looking at the brownies. You're looking past the brownies into uh, the, the kitchen cabinets and, and the doorknobs, and you see this perfectly placed chalkboard with this amazing picture of this wonderful family, and you're thinking, I hate her brownies. <laughs> or maybe your friends has posted, again, the perfect family picture on the beach again. I mean, this is like the second time this year, and I can't even afford to go to the movies. And they... And there she is taking the picture of the ocean with, on the bottom, strategically placed her book and her top of her toes. And like, that's what you see. And, and you just begin to be like, ah, oh, I want to be at the beach. Or it could be relational comparison. You see all these posts of your friends again, and you're not invited. Or maybe you're married, and it seems like everyone else is married, and you want to be married. You start thinking like, well, I'm better looking than she is. I'm better than he is. Why are they married and not me? Or you see this picture of the family, uh, you know, you get the, the Christmas card, right? You get the Christmas card, and, and, they, and you see this family, and they all have these this cheesy, you know, block letters, you know, spelled out their name, and they, everyone has a matching sweater, including the dog. And it's just like, you know, if they, if they took, if you sent out a Christmas card, you'd be like, you guys choking each other, like, because that's what your life is like. And so you have all this envy over their, their family, or it could be circumstantial comparison. You just wish you had somebody else's life situation. Man, if I had her opportunities. Man, if I had his opportunities. I wish I had a job of significance. I wish I had a job that gave me that kind of freedom. Or again, maybe it's just an entire family situation. I mean, you look at, you look at their parents, and, and their parents are really engaged in their kid's life, in your kid's life. And you're thinking like, man, I, I, I don't have a good relationship with my mom. I don't have a good relationship with my dad. My dad's not even in the picture. I would love to have grandparents who are engaged like that or parents that act like the, the grandparents, and have the babysitting anytime I want. And you just don't, you're, you can't celebrate what's the blessing that they have. You actually resent them for it. Or I wish I could have a baby. This seems like the 14th reveal party this week, and I can't have a baby. Sociologists say that envy is becoming a bigger problem for our generation than ever before because of social media. And here's why. We look at other people's lives on a filtered image, and we compare their highlight reel with our behind-the-scenes lowlights, their best of their best, the worst of our worst. And so, man, you were feeling great about the flowers that your husband gave you, and you were feeling great about the, the dinner he cooked for you until you saw you know, your girlfriend, you know, his, her husband bought her a pony and took her on a backpacking trip through Europe <laughs> with the cast of Hamilton, and you're just like, man, I hate the, you know, the stupid dinner. And you don't even know that they're on the brink of divorce, but you see the highlight. You don't see the whole picture. You compare their high, highlight and their highlight and their highlight and their highlight. And it's just like you just get into this game and you can't win. I heard, heard about two moms who confessed to each other how they hated each other on social media. Uh, one was a working mom, and I quote, I just hated you because you had this perfect Pinterest stay-at-home mom who does these crafts and structured time with her kids, and it just made me feel so guilty. The stay-at-home mom says, I hated you because you had a life and you're out in public and you're doing things. I haven't had my hair in a pony, except for a ponytail since 2015 and I haven't had an adult conversation in a decade. And here you have these two people hating each other over a filtered presentation of their life. And never before in history, never before in history could we so accurately measure our own popularity and sense of value. I mean, when I was a kid, you just kind of had to randomly guess if you were popular. Like, I don't know, like maybe I'm popular. I mean, like... <laughs> 
I guess there's, you know, people hang out with me sometimes and, you know, I get invited to stuff. I guess I'm popular. You, you, I can show you statistics on how popular you are. This is how many friends that you have. This is how many people follow you. This is how many people like what you post. This is the kind of people who show you appreciate. And what ends up happening, this becomes like this, the sense of identity becomes like a, like a product you're selling and you're the product. In fact, when you post a picture, you know, that you, you, you know, your average is 33 likes, but you, you know, your highest, but this one only got nine. Well, I'm going to take that product off the shelf. I'm going to delete that because that's affecting my overall value. And then you begin to compare, like your top is 55 and she gets 145 when she posts a picture of toast. Like that's, So researchers has demonstrated the more we compare ourselves to others in social media, the less satisfied we become. They've done some studies on universities. This is becoming a really big deal. This is just in life. They, they studied uh, students who spent a half hour on Facebook uh, looking at random people in their, in their life stage. And more than a third of them, after just one half hour, said they felt significantly depressed. And many more who felt other negative feelings. Um, social media is, is you, could, you could call it the land of Ur. This is what the land of Ur is. He is richer. She is skinnier, smarter, taller, prettier, married-er, cooler, popular-er. And there's just like, when you get into this you know, comparison thing, there's, there's just no way to win. It's a, it's a trap. It is a trap, and it, it is something that you cannot win. There's only two options when you get into comparison, only two options. One is you feel inferior-er, or you feel superior-er. In other words, you have insecurity, or you have pride. So you get on Instabrag and, and show your amazing life or in your Facebook to like sh- tell other people off, and you feel superior or you feel inferior. It's a no-win situation. It's foolish. Actually, that's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians, in the second letter to Corinthians in chapter 12. He says, but when they measured themselves by one another and compared themselves with one another, they are without understanding when they do that. I love how this translation says it. They're just ignorant. How ignorant is it to compare yourself to other people? It is a no-win game. You cannot win at this game. There are two bad outcomes. There are no good outcomes. Nobody wins. And again, the psalmist called this kind of comparison a wearisome task. A wearisome task. It's wearisome. It's ignorant. And here's why it's ignorant. It's also a distraction. Because God's called you. He's given you stuff. He's called you to do things. And you're not doing it because you are spending, on average, two and a half hours a day comparing yourself to other people. This is what the writer of Hebrews says. And let us run with endurance the race that he set before us. He set a race before you. He's not set, he, you're not to run the race that he set before somebody else. You are to run. You cannot run a race doing this. I don't know if you've run track before. I haven't either. But if you, you can't. I don't see people running track doing this at the Olympics. You can't. You'll lose. And many of us are losing because we're allowing this envy to to compare. Why does he get that race? 
That's what you do. That's what we do. We, we get all fixated on the race that we have. I want that race. You cannot run your race if you're focusing on other people's race. The race that you have been called to, listen to me, isn't nearly as important as how you run. The race that you have been called to isn't nearly as important as you run that. You and I don't believe that. We believe that what really matters is the race that you've been given. And it's just not true. We don't look to each other, but we look to Jesus the founder, perfecter of our, faith, of our faith. You can't win a race marked out for someone else. It's a race you'll never win. You see, and, and what you end up doing is comparison diminishes your uniqueness because God has made you specifically you to be you for a reason. And when you compare yourself, you diminish your uniqueness and your unique potential. God has something for you, but you can't even engage in it because you're thinking about what other people have and you're not thinking about what God has put in front of you. Now, if there was ever a person ever who might've struggled with comparison and envy, it has to be James. James, if you don't know, was the little brother of Jesus. And his parents did not just think that his older brother was perfect. He was perfect. I mean, you talk about like a, I mean, that's just like, you know, you went, they, everything he did, it's just like, well, it wasn't as good as Jesus. Okay. Um, let me show you this. This is what James says. So he knows something. So if you want to get to the bottom of what envy really is, because this is where it gets ugly. I mean, uh, the, the writer of the Psalm, verse 22, talked about when he got into envy. He said he became a beast toward God. And we're going to see... It's like a beast. What's going on here? It's just like, hey, I'm just like, I just like the, anyway, this is what he says. He says, but if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, we'll come back to that word in a second, in your hearts, do not boast and be, a, and be false to the truth. This is not wisdom. Remember what Paul said? It's ignorant. He just says the same thing. It's not wisdom. He's a little nicer with it. Um, that comes down from above, but it is earthly. It is unspiritual. This seems over the top. It's demonic. Comparing yourself in the envious thoughts is demonic. The writer of the Psalm says, I became a beast to you. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, and this is one of the reasons why it's demonic, is selfish ambition. Here's what I'm saying. is like when you get caught up into comparison, you've lost the reality of God's glory and you're thinking about your glory. Because, God, because if you're like running your race and you're having your eyes on Jesus, it's like, my life is all about you. It's for you. I'm just a nickel in your pocket. You can spin me however you want. And when you begin comparison, you, what it reveals is a heart that wants its own glory. And you see someone else getting glory. You see someone else succeeding and you resent them for it because they have what you really want. Selfish ambitions. And then there'll be disorder in every kind of vile practice. Some translations say evil practice. That sounds really bad. It is really bad. So here's the progression. It starts with comparison. And then you need to do something with the inequity that you're seeing. So you grieve. That's not fair. That's not just. I'm, I'm not envious. I'm grieved. But Asaph was honest when he looked back at his life in verse 21. He says, my soul was actually, I was embittered. I wasn't just sad. I just didn't want other people's lives. I resented them for it. And, and would you, would you, I know this is hard because one of the difficult thing about admitting that you're bitter or that you're envious 
That's next week. Bitter's next week. It'll be a hoot next week. Um, that's my train of thought. Um, oh, one of the things that you have to admit if, you, if you've got envy is like it's like enormously petty. It's enormously, I mean, you guys gasped when I told you the story about the crabs. Like, he's just like, that just seems so petty. Just let them succeed. But would you consider that maybe at the root of your unhappiness is an envious heart? Because in order to justify ourselves, when we, when we get unhappy, when we see other people succeeding, we have to tear the person down. We have to give ourselves a narrative of why they have what they have. Oh, they got that. They, they must have cheated. They must have lied. They must have done something. I don't want to be like that person. Your heart has to justify that. I don't want to be like them, even though you secretly do. If you've ever, if you've ever been upset about someone else's success, you have experienced envy. If you've ever been happy about someone else's failures, you have experienced envy. If you've ever felt sorry for yourself, you have experienced envy. Beware of the person who sits in self-pity. How do we get rid of it? I want to get rid of it. I don't know about you. I don't want an in me. I don't want envy in me. How do we get rid of it? Well, we look up and we look out. We look first, we look up to him. Verse 16 and 17, uh, the psalmist says that he was riddled with comparison and envy until, until, until he went into the sanctuary of God. He had an encounter with God, his presence. Uh, in Proverbs 23, Solomon said to not be envious, but fear the Lord. So the opposite of being envious is standing in the fear and the awe of the Lord. If you're standing in the fear and awe of the Lord, you're not going to worry about what other people have because you're, you're in awe of him. And if you're envious, you can't be in the awe of God. Um, because at the bottom... This is why James says it's envy is unspiritual and demonic. At the bottom of envy is this insidious idea that God owes me. Like if you really peel back the layers of envy, if you really get to truth and reality, at the, at the bottom of it is this idea that God owes me, that he should have given me more. And in the end, it's really God's fault. And this gets buried into our subconscious to where it becomes a part of our operating system and we live our entire lives this way. But here's what's true. Our dissatisfaction with what we have says more about how we feel about God than how we feel about the people we're comparing ourselves to. And I can't think of a better illustration than this than the one Jesus gives in one of his most famous parables. It's called the parable of the talents. And uh, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna share this parable with you uh, and explain, illustrate what I've just said uh, and, then, and then we'll close. But here, here's the parable, the parable of the talents. And it says, again, it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. So he gave, you know, one, we're going to see this. He gave three different people different amounts of money. So the question that gives us the behind the scenes look at the real issue is who decides who gets what? You're in church. You can say it. God. God. Yes. He entrusted his wealth. His wealth. Next time I'll just say, I'll just, I won't even, I'll just change the translation, put God there. Sorry. So God, so, he, so, so God decides who gets what. Okay, let's continue. 
To one, he gave five bags of gold. So this is different amounts of money. Uh, different translations describe it differently. In fact, you know, I said this is called the parable of the talents. A talent, one talent was the equivalent of 15 years worth of wages. So like a, a bag of gold or $750,000 is the average, you know, if you're an average income earner. So one talent, so five talents of gold, that's a lot of, that's a lot of money. So he gave, to one he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained Two more, but the one who had received one bag went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Because after all, what can you do with just one bag of gold? I mean, if I had two bags of gold, I could do something with that. I mean, if I had five bags of gold, I, I could change the world. But what can you do with just one bag of gold? In other words, if I had her opportunities, of course. If I had his wealth, of course. If I had parents like that, of course. If I had money like that, of course. If I had time like that, of course. If I had five or two bags, of course. But what could I possibly do with one bag of gold? Story continues. After a long time. By the way, all that means is an entire life. So when he tells parables, he says, after a long time, that means your entire life, at the end of your life. The master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. Notice it didn't, they, didn't settle account, they didn't settle accounts with each other. They settled. You see, I'm tempted, to, I'm tempted to compare myself to you all the time. I'm, te- I'm tempted to settle my accounts with you all the time, but there will be a day where I will stand and God will not compare me to you. He will compare me to what he asked me to do. He's going to settle accounts with me. So the story continues. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I have gained five more. Look at what I did with what you gave me. Look at what I did with what you gave. In fact, I just think we should all say that together. Ready? Look at what I did with what you gave me. What you do with what he gives you is way more important than what he gives you. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things, which the audience would have gasped. Five bags of gold? That's not a few things, to which Jesus would have replied, compared to what? I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. And then this, the same thing happens with the guy with two. The, the man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags. See, I have gained two more. Look at what I did with what you gave me. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. And that's exactly what he said about the guy with five. You want to know why? The most that you can have in this world is a few things. But there is a place where you can have many things and your master's happiness. Now, we know where the story goes. And then the third little pig went, wee, 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 all the way home. No, that's what I say. That's what I always, I, you know, I read too many bedtime stories, I guess. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. 
Master, he said, I knew that you are a hard man and harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. In other words, before I tell you what I did with what you gave me, I just want you to know it's your fault. If you had given me more, I could have done more. I mean, what could you do with one bag of gold? This is your fault. Comparison, envy, waves its fists at God. That's why the psalmist says, I was a beast to you. That's why James says it is unspiritual and demonic. So number one, you need to look up in fear and in awe and worship of God, not just head knowledge. You cannot educate yourself out of envy. I could not... I, I could tell you, I could show you stat after stat after stat how it's, it's ignorant and foolish, but you, I, you could never educate yourself out of envy. It is a deep heart issue. It is deep into your subconscious. It is deep into the operating system of your life. It's, the way, it's how you process everything. It's a heart issue that when you follow it to its end leads with God owes me. God has not been fair. You need an experience of his love for you. He who did not spare his own son, will he not give you all things? Psalm 73, uh, the psalmist says, who am I in heaven but you? This is what happens when you encounter God in his sanctuary. Before you encounter God, you're like, why are they got good bodies? Why are they succeeding? Why is this happening? At the end of an encounter with God, you're like, who am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth I desire besides you. Well, of course, if you encounter the creator of the universe, if you got his attention, what else do you need? How many likes do you need? My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is my strength of my heart and my portion forever, which is why we can't, we look up to what he's done for us and we look forward to see what he has for us. Again, most of what this earth, the best that this world can offer is a few things. In the life to come are many things and, and, and the master's happiness. So just, I want to be even more practical, standing in awe of God. This is what I think should happen today, today today. We're going to worship here in a second. This is what I think should happen. In a moment of worship, will you be willing, would you be willing to call it what it is? This sense of resentment toward others, this sense of self-pity, would you be willing to call it what it is. As God shines a light on it, would you be willing to call it what it is? The writer of the psalm says, I wasn't just grieved. He says, I was envious. I was embittered. I was ignorant. I was brutish. And then he says, I almost slipped and really went down into a spiral. But I went into the sanctuary of God. God did something. It's only going to happen if you call it what it is, which will means the second part of that is that you'll let it humble you. You'll let it humble you. It, it is, I think it's a humbling thing to admit that you're envious. 
Um, and when you do authentically repent, here's what you're going to be able to do. You, you'll be able to genuinely, when you see other people succeed, you'll be able to gener- genuinely celebrate what God has given others. And that'll free you up to leverage what God has given you. It's where he's leading you. You'll be able to celebrate that person that you have resentment toward, that you think it's not fair. You'll be able to come alongside them. And I think you should do that. If they're in this room, I'd wait a couple days so that's not too obvious. But (laughs) Or you can authentically celebrate what God has given them so that you can begin to finally, finally leverage what God has given you. He's got a race for you to run. He's, got, he's, he's given you a unique measure. And it's such a freeing thing to live for God's glory, not your own. You see, there was this time in uh, the, the life of, of John and Jesus and Peter. Uh, Jesus had resurrected. It's in John 21. Um, actually, it starts in John 20. Um, and um, he tells of the resurrection. Jesus resurrected, and then he's hanging out with him on the beach, and they're having breakfast and stuff like that. But John, they, they, John and Peter, if you kind of read into the disciples, they, they kind of have this competition thing going. Like they're kind of competing with each other. In fact, John is like, it's kind of annoying. He's like, oh, he's always referring to himself in the third person. I'm the one that he's just, the one, the disciple that Jesus loved, like that he's talking about himself. So he's always referring to, hey, I'm, you know, the one, the disciple that Jesus loved did this. And then when you read John 20, you notice that John points out three different times that he beat Peter to the tomb. It says, he says that, the disciple that Jesus loved and Peter raced <laughs> to the tomb, and the disciple that Jesus loved got there first, and the disciple that Jesus loved outran him. I mean, he says it three different times. You can look it up for yourself. In other words, he's like, I just want you to know that Jesus is alive, and I beat Peter. Like, that's his, that's his whole thing. So in the next chapter, they're on the beach, and Jesus comes to John, or excuse me, Peter, I'm sorry, comes to Peter, and he says, hey, I just want you to know you're going to die a brutal death for me. And Peter says, he looks, o- it looks over to John, and he, and he says, what about him? And Jesus says to him, what is it to you if he remains alive until I come back? God wants to free you to the point to where you could, what is it to you that they're faster? What is it to you that they have lots of friends? What is it to you that they're succeeding? What is it to you that they're doing well? What is it to you? God God can do whatever he wants. You believe that? Here's the thing, and here's what's distracting you from. It's distracting you from, from doing what God wants you to do. And that's what he says to Peter. He says, what is it to you that if he stays alive until I come back, you follow me. You Follow me. You see, God wants to free you from more than just having a depressing afternoon because of seeing other people succeed. He wants to get you on the track that he has. He has unique opportunities for you. He has unique potential for you. So then you can look to your future and realize what he has for you so that you can run the race. And that's what we want. We want to be free. See, that's what the gospel is. The gospel frees us from ourselves. It frees us from love of ourselves, attention from ourselves. It puts it all back on God where it's supposed to be. 
And when that, you're, you're happier, you're healthier, and you're doing and you're living the life that God has for you. When you start to get your attention to the left and to the right and to other people in comparison, it fills you up with all kinds of things that are unspiritual, that are demonic and evil. And God wants to, God wants to root that out of you tomorrow. If you're willing to look up to him and then look out to what he has for you, which are many things, including the happiness of the master. Why don't we stand?